Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Cherthus. Taste of Persia, Burma, rivers of flavor, beyond the Great Wall from Western China, before that seduction of rice, flatbreads and flavors. Author Naomi Duguid has been traveling on and off for most of her adult life bringing back beautiful images and mouth-watering insights into the cooking and culture of the people she met along the way. Writing at first with her ex, Geoffrey Alford, she's published a series of books that wowed the critics and, more importantly, persuaded readers that they could attempt those exciting dishes in their own kitchens. That's probably because Naomi Duguid has a very practical approach to the recipes she presents. Back in her home kitchen in Toronto, in Canada, she sets about recreating the food she experienced on her travels until it matches her memories. But it all starts with endless curiosity and great respect for the women she's learning from. The categorization of things as being sort of, I don't know, sophisticated or, you know, better or primitive or basic, uh, I've always, of course, you know, rejected because to me, actually, the basic things are the interesting ones because those are the ones that require enormous creativity and attentiveness to get right. If you've got lots of choices of ingredient, you can always make a meal. But if you've only got three things to work with, how do you feed your family? You know, isn't that interesting? You know, and isn't it lucky to be able to to learn about that from people who know? Your your books are so beautiful that I wouldn't dream of taking them into the kitchen. Um, oh, they're made to be used. I mean, that's very nice of you, but, you know, um, I, what I love is, is if, you know, in, in former times and hopefully future times, being out on, say, book tour or just somewhere and, and meeting someone saying, oh, you know, I hope you don't mind my book is so dirty and stained, and I say, yay, you know, that's great. Not that anybody has to um, cook out of them, but it's a lovely thing to think that people are prepared to, I would say, take the risk of embarking uh, on a, for example, on a, into a food culture they're not familiar with, because that's, of course, what I want people to do, not necessarily cook, but to, to connect imaginatively with people from other places far away that might have felt scary or, you know, unfamiliar in various ways. And to have a fellow feeling, to feel you're in the kitchen with someone. And, you know, anyway, and you can do that if you're cooking somebody else's food. You you start to, you know, you, you suddenly can put yourself in their place. But, but this is the thing. You, you are in their place. Um, Mm. You go there, you spend a lot of time there. How do you do it? I mean, I've read that you don't take many notes, for example, but you then come back to your home in Toronto and and try and recreate the dishes. So how do you do it? How do you get into people's kitchens? Let's start with that. Well, I guess the thing is that I don't start out thinking that I need to. In other words, not being needy is the first thing. And having enough time. So 
I don't go with an agenda. I go with sort of trying to make myself available, which means hanging around and noticing and trying to appreciate and also trying to notice the things that feel, feel what would I say, uncomfortable to me. And then to interrogate myself because they're clearly not uncomfortable to people there. So what's wrong with me? What am I not understanding that I'm uncomfortable with that thing? I mean, I think that goes for tastes. It goes for all kinds of things. What's, what is it about there that means that people are attached to this particular smelly thing or this, whatever it is? In other words, it's not about what I think is great. It's not about my judgment, and it's not about the plan I make ahead of time. I'm an ignorant person, so I need to go and be a beginner and say, what's going on here for people here? That's the thing. And so in terms of the note-taking, for example, if you're a beginner, then, then you're finding your way into things. And that's, that's a way of learning that is, you know, learning from the beginning as opposed to sort of thinking, oh, oh, I get that and that and that, but not understanding. I, I can't explain, but you're sort of building from the ground up if you, if you come in with an ignorant frame of mind, if I can call it that, an empty mind, you know. It, it, it seems to me it's almost like you, 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 you make yourself a child learning from their parents, well, exactly. And, I, you know, if you think about traditional ways of learning, for example, uh, long ago I, I, I uh, learned Tai Chi and did it for quite a while in my 20s. And um, I learned from a much older uh, woman who was from China and who was in Toronto and didn't have much English. And she didn't talk, you know. You copied every once in a while she'd come and maybe move my hand we were doing it in a group but she'd it was just about just letting go of any preconceptions and just trying to be present in that thing that was going on and I think so if I'm coming into I don't know um say walking this is before working on food uh, consciously uh but say I'm walking in Nepal and I'm in my 20s and I I'm tired at the end of a day and come to a village and somebody directs me to the house that takes, you know, has a space for somebody to sleep. This is before things got super organized in Nepal, so in the 70s. And so, well, what's happening? Night is falling and so the woman of the house has lit a fire and she's starting to cook and I'm going to squat down on my hunkers, um, you know, and watch because that's what's going on. And I realize, you know, so in effect, I've been trying to understand things through food for longer than I've been working in food, if I can put it that way. <laughs> um, I think it's a friend of mine says, oh, well, it's something about you have maybe a Scottish brain. I have a Scottish grandfather. You, you know, you're so you're such a concrete thinker. And I think it's that I want to understand. And I I'm interested in conceptual thinking too, but the, the, the fine grainness of of what actually is going on, where does the water come from? What's the climate that she's, gosh, I wonder why she doesn't have this, she only has that. Oh, I guess it's because on this side of the valley, you know, it's colder. And so 
you know, but on the other side of the valley, because I may have walked down to the bottom of the valley and then back up the other slope, the other side of the valley, the food was different. You know, what would that be about? Maybe it's culture. Gosh, I don't know. But, you know, so it's just always sort of trying to understand at that kind of immediate level. And then often that leads to all kinds of other larger questions, of course, but, you know. But you said you were interested in food before you were interested in food. Um, and I wonder, you, you also clearly have been traveling since forever. Is the traveling seeking out food or is the food telling you where to go next or are the two unrelated? Well, at the beginning, the travel was the travel. Um, and, you know, because I was curious about the world and was able for various reasons to travel um, and then uh, is fitting it in between study or work or whatever. Um, but in retrospect, it was always when I was somewhere, certainly food and, you know, kind of uh, my undergraduate degrees in geography. And perhaps it's that, that understanding a place through what grow, what the climate is. Well, what does it grow? What grows there? Well, how do people's houses? I mean, architecture, so the interesting landscape to me is the human landscape. What have people done here? What can I see? I'm not interested in, you know, the mountain on its own is, I mean, that's nice, you know. But the thing that's fascinating to me is how how have humans worked here and shaped this and and what made sense to them, you know, historically and um, and what makes sense to them now and you know, so so I guess explanation is the thing, and curiosity and explanation are the two things that drive me. But they're focused on food in as much as, although your books are part photographic record and, and part history and part anthropology almost, um, you come back... To the food, yeah. And you write recipes that that enable people in Toronto, in Rome, in London, wherever. To participate. To try, yeah. yes, yeah. or at least to try, yeah. Well, to so, travel in their kitchens is my, my sort of, my, my language. Um, I sometimes say, you know, happy travels in the kitchen and out to people. Um, if I'm signing a book and have time to do that. Um, and there, it's interesting, I, I use the camera as the note taker. I mean, now it's easier with um, digital but I always, even with slides, I would blow some, you know, blow slides on, I'd take shots, not good ones, not, not, for, not for beautiful, <laughs> but literally because it was the easiest way to take a note. Because there's something, especially in a place where the tax collector or the oppressive government is oppressive, um, that, that means that when you take out pencil and paper, in when you're in company with someone else and make notes about what they're doing, it's it's uh, intimidating or off-putting, and it closes them down. And so that's sort of something I learned fairly early. I guess in China, in 1980, and I mean, you just you just know that this is not the thing to do. So of course, back back in the dorm or whatever, you know, little notes about the day and stuff, and oh, remember the look of whatever. But it's actually the camera, uh, because it wasn't viewed in the same way, is, was a safer way to to take notes. And so that's kind of, that's really it. And also touch. So 
if I was in somebody's kitchen, actually, and someone was showing me, I would, I remember doing this, oh, in various places, so, you know, there's sort of a handful of something. I, uh, in Senegal, I remember holding this, uh, I stayed with a woman named Sarta, holding her hand and, and, and then transferring the peppercorns to my hand to feel, because that helped, that helped me anchor me, I guess. Again, the physical, the concrete is always the place. And so the recipe becomes, you know, if you, if you're trying hard to get that kind of right and to anchor in that, then hopefully is what I think. It kept me from fantasizing or mythologizing or, you know, um, kept my feet on the, some, the home cooking, honest daily life ground and not in some, I don't know, dreams of castles in Spain or palazzos, you know. But it's interesting too that if you if you went into I mean even even one of your neighbors and and there isn't a recipe for most of the things people cook every day, um, whatever their culture, there isn't no. a written recipe. Well, no, but there is. There are instructions. There's a mother-in-law who will beat you up if you do it wrong. You know, in many places. I mean, there's somebody sitting on your shoulder saying, you know. Whether it's, you know, your roti isn't perfectly round, you know, or, I mean, so there is a way of doing things. And that's why, again, it's not about a telling, it's about a seeing. It's about a participating, you know. I guess modern phones are, are, are really useful to you. Fabulous, fabulously useful, really extraordinary. The, but there's, you know, just to then counter that, coming back from a trip in the old days of slides, I'd have... I'd be carrying my film with me. So first undeveloped, uh, you know, unexposed film. And then, gosh, exposed film, that's the precious one. You know, I have something to lose then. And I carry it with me until I got home to have it processed or till I got, say, to Bangkok was a place I used to sometimes get film processed. So, so then the question is, well, oh, you know, the slides, I'm looking forward to seeing the slides. Yes and kind of no. And I've learned to actually not look at them after a trip for maybe two or three weeks because the image, as you know, is so powerful it preempts the mind's eye. It preempts our our intuitive, maybe other sensory memories. And so it seemed always seemed important to me to get back and kind of um, start playing with maybe some ingredients or looking at my notes and so on before actually... Um, does that make sense to you? Absolutely. But is there an equivalent? You talk about the mind's eye. Is there an equivalent to the taste of something when you come back? Yes, I, that's a good question. Um, what I find the best way to remember things is uh, in, what's in my mouth and what I'm tasting is um, is contextually, and um, in other words. Some, the best example of this actually was um, was I was in in Portugal in a village. It's the highest village in Portugal. It's called Sabugueiro, and in two thousand, and um, I was in luckily in the house of a woman named Margarita. Uh, you know, all happenstantial anyway, and she was making bread uh, that night, as it turned out, and the next day they fired up the wood oven in this house. It was the village oven. 
anyway, that evening, I sat and had, I had supper with her, and there was a honey, and there was a cheese. And so I brought some of that honey back to Toronto, and I brought some of the cheese, snuck the cheese in. And uh, then when I tried the recipe, uh, it's a rye, mixed rye wheat bread. I didn't know. I had not known there was rye bread in Portugal. It was all a huge education. Anyway, um, I was lucky with that recipe test because the first time around I got really close. And how did I know I was close? I had the honey. And I could taste how it tasted with the honey. I could taste how it tasted with the cheese. And somehow that gave me... You see what I mean? It, so it's not a comparative tasting, but in that sense, it's a contextual tasting. So that's one of the things. And when it comes to, okay, bread, wheat, rye, yeah. honey, yeah. cheese, I get that. But when, mm-hmm. when, when you're kind of floating down the Mekong or whatever and trying to, yeah. uh, trying to recover that back in Toronto, yeah. I, I mean, I know you can get absolutely anything you want in Toronto, how do you do that? Well, I think, you know, think I, I sort of console myself, <laughs> perhaps wrongly. I console myself with the uh, idea that if someone from Laos or Northern Thailand or whatever finds himself in Toronto, and they have to make do with what's here, and they're going to work to get as close as they can to the taste of home, working with what they have here. So the tomatoes aren't going to be right. Um, they're going to be whatever. They, everything is going to be a bit sort of. It's going to be from here, grown here. It's like Ethiopians working with teff flour grown in Idaho instead of uh, teff from Ethiopia. It tastes quite different, they said to me, but it's still it's teff. How exciting! So I I think that's that's all I can try and do is think about the effect in the mouth. Not even I don't even think of the word taste. It's the combined sense of how it is. And to try and do it without distraction, I think that's the other thing. To sort of almost, it is almost closing your eyes and saying, am I there? No, I'm not there. This is too whatever. No, no, uh, I'm not there. <laughs> it's edible. It's perfectly fine. But it's I'm not there. No. But often these dishes, you're also working in increments. So you can taste it partway through and, and sort of re-steer it or think, okay, this is where I went wrong. You know, you've that that's where baking is more tricky because it's, you know, it's a black box thing. I mean, literally, often. Um, flatbreads, not so much. But the other, but even flatbreads, you know, once you've made the dough, you're kind of, you're launched. And if you need to tweak it, you have to start again. Yeah. No, I, I that bread's, bread's my thing and I, I, I fully relate to that. But the flatbreads, um, it's... Again, it's a kind of an interesting departure because we, quote unquote, Europeans, mm. we don't do flatbread. We do loaves. So, what was it about flatbreads that really intrigued you? Was that a, was that a, an excuse to travel? Well, no. It's interesting. It was. It started with because uh, I was with my ex, with Jeffrey Alfred, and we were we were in uh, China traveling. In in uh, Xinjiang, which is now being, you know, the Uyghurs are now being kind of crucified and genocided, to use it as that that form, uh, by the Chinese. Um, but we were we had set out to bicycle it was shortly after we'd met to bicycle from Kashgar in western Xinjiang 
um, through the Karakoram into uh, into Hansa. They, that that border had just opened uh, to the road was built is a bit of a strong word it was a dirt road but it was there more or less and they were, and we could pass through if we had a visa we got a visa and in that country in all of that country and you think about flatbreds they're really breads of people who who don't have access to a fixed hearth often and so because if you're making a loaf you need to have continuous reliable heat and that means you need to have a structure that holds it in, and that means you need to be in a place where that structure can exist and not be in danger, and that means settledness. And uh, whereas flatbreads, I mean, you can make them, of course, as settled people, but you they also are, uh, you can make them on a sudge, on a surface, anywhere, over a fire. So what was interesting out in Western, in, in Xinjiang generally, is uh, people were eating a lot of bread, especially in the small villages, and we stopped in one place and we were invited in because it wasn't common to see people. There was nobody on a bicycle except us. Anyway, and uh, we asked in this Tajik village, actually, well, how much, how much bread do you eat a day? And in my sort of bad sort of pigeon uh, Mandarin, because there's always one man at least who would speak Mandarin in the villages. And they said one person one day one kilo that's of course the roman soldiers ration um and so that's sort of 80 percent of their calories from bread um and so you know you think well that's really important so we i mean we're eating flatbreads a lot and and my ex jeffrey was had been fascinated with flatbreads before i'd come from sort of a bread making household not flatbreads uh, my mother made all our bread when I was growing up, and we kids had to, she'd say, oh, I've left the loaves, put them in the oven or whatever. So bread was very much part of my growing up, too. Anyway, it seemed like an important thing, you know. Um, and, of course, there are flatbreads in Europe. There's there's the flatbread that you use to test the oven in a village, uh, whether it's a rye flatbread in Poland. I was told this by a Polish grandmother or somebody's Polish grandmother, or by an Italian friend, you know, yes, of course, my friend Luigi Orgera, who from, was from Gaeta, said his, his family was, were bakers for generations, said, of course, you'd put, make a flat, like a pita, and put it in to see if the, if the oven was to temperature. And then, of course, all of the extraordinary flatbreads in India. So it was like, oh, gosh, when we, we wanted to do the book, it was how... Uh, this is just just a taste, you know. I think there's 45 or something, 50 maybe breads in the book, and then foods to go with them. And but there's so many more. There's so many more flatbreads, and I think that's where you start to say, ah, loaf breads are really just an extension of flatbreads instead of flatbreads being an offshoot. It's the other way around, you know. Because if you go to the Bedouin, you know, they're they're working with barley originally. Now they've got wheat. Um, so it's, it's just, um, if my goal is to get people to embark, then I want to try, I'm already asking them to try things that are really foreign to them. I want to smooth away things that are going to intimidate, um, as much as I can. You know, I think it's up to anybody to play, right? You want to give them something that's going to intrigue them enough that they'll play with it. 
right, and engage with it. It's not about perfection. Nor is it about authenticity, that awful, awful thing that's <laughs> that plaguing that everybody. stops people. Well, yeah, I think that, I think that whatever you're making in your kitchen is, is yours to try. I think it's important always to acknowledge the roots of things. But, you know, the, the Lao refugee who comes here and is making her food here, that's not inauthentic. That's how her food transposes to here with her aesthetic and her culture and her reflexes, but not working over an open fire, no longer with her stone mortar because she hasn't got one yet, you know, all of that. So I think um, we need to have respect and we need to give credit always to the mothers and grandmothers. I'm going to phrase it that way because it's really where it seems to lie mostly, who found their way with new ingredients as they came along and still keeping old traditions. But then after that, uh, I think we're just humans trying to work respectfully with food. That's really, I think, the only thing uh, that's necessary. But then how about the suburban Canadian family making Lao food? Um, yeah. Is, in what sense is that authentic or does it not matter at all? They're just making food in their kitchen and they're they're engaging with maybe an idea of Laos um, and thinking, oh, where's that on the map? Maybe some kid says that or, you know, it becomes a favorite of theirs and think, well, there's a cross-connection, a thin little thread of cross-connection that might be an emotional appreciation, might be a political appreciation, I hope. Because, of course, foundationally, for me, it's all political. I mean, at the base, it's all about um, politics in the sense of having respect and understanding of people, not yourself. And so, and, and wanting to give, use this little tool, this massive tool of food as the way of building that in other people. So, you know, I just want this to filter into people's awareness. How, how do you feel then when formally, um, closed off, maybe authoritarian cultures open up and the f first thing that happens is that um, globalized foods or imitations of globalized foods take over in many respects from their cultures. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if you've been back to Burma recently or, or back to, to Western China, to see what's happened to the culture, the food cultures there? Well, I think it, it's really interesting. Uh, there's a lot of layers of that. You know, when the first McDonald's opened in Hong Kong a gazillion years ago, 25 years ago, I think, or 30 years ago, you know, it was, it was a status, and in Bangkok too, it was thrilling for people to be able to go there at air-conditioned space, uh, there weren't as many air-conditioned spaces in, in Bangkok then. And it was very sleek and modern, and, and Thais checked it out. They thought it was really fun. It didn't mean they didn't know um, about their other stuff. It was just another thing they were prepared to add to their enormously um, cosmopolitan set of uh, food uh, options. So if you think about the targeting, or, for example, when I was first in Vietnam, it was early, you know, end of January 1990. 
and uh, Coca-Cola had just arrived. There were still sanctions. Uh, Americans still had sanctions. But Coca-Cola had figured out how to get itself in there without being sanctioned by the U.S. government. And a, a can of Coca-Cola, which looked like this, I mean, it was so exotic looking in Vietnam because everything else was worn and war-worn and tired. Uh, and these sleek red you know, and white cans, and they cost mm, something like 4,000 dong, which at the time was uh, a dollar, and for which you could feed a family of five or six out in the market. I mean, you could buy prepared food and sit and eat it out in a market stall for that. And so, you know, the, I haven't been to Vietnam for a while, I guess probably eight years. Um, sure, there's modern things, but it's it's a robust culture. There's home cooking. There's And so the idea that we should put walls up to wall off and say, well, no, you you person, your food culture is so great, you don't you shouldn't have access to, to choosing to make the mistake of eating fast food. No, no, no. We, we need to just say, let's give everybody the respect they deserve. And really, in the end, the place that that, that junk food uh, happens to destroy people is when they, when it becomes cheaper than real food. And uh, that is when, in fact, there's something wrong with the food supply. Um, I mean, in other words, that's something wrong with, with income distribution, something wrong with the fact that you know farmers aren't being paid. Par- I mean, you know, it's it's all part of a, a larger picture. But no, no, no. I think I'm. We just have to let life play itself out. I would say. I see what you mean about politics being at the heart of it all. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but, you know, it all it does go. I mean, it does go to politics. You know, food is so essential. How can it not? You know. A, a, a final a final question. Um, how have you been coping with not being able to travel? I mean, presumably you haven't been anywhere much in the last year have, or so. I got back, uh, you know, I have been doing every year a, a, a sort of cultural immersion through food session with a small group in Thailand in, in, in Chiang Mai in at the end of January. So I did that and then flew back through the UK I, uh, for a, a meeting of the the Oxford Symposium trustees, flew back to Toronto in early March and uh, have been here ever since. And um, I'm working on a book right now, and I had a little more travel to do for it. It's about salt, and since my, uh, what would I say, my gleaning for the book is also involves travels, of course, in space, but also in time. The fact that there's places I can't get to now is just sort of an equivalent of not being able to go back to a salt place in an earlier time. So it's really the same, um, up to me to figure it out. And I'm lucky enough to um, not have young children that I'm worrying about. So I have no excuse for uh, not just getting on with it. Naomi Dugit, talking from her home in Toronto as what I hope was a pleasant break from that new book on salt that she's working on. I should mention that when we spoke, the coup in Burma had not yet happened. So it wasn't as if we were avoiding the topic, just that there were so many other interesting things to explore. As I said, all her books are drop-dead gorgeous, as well as being immensely informative and practical. If you don't already know them, do take a look. 
And that's all from me for another episode. I'd better do the needy bit, as I haven't done so for a while. It really helps to put the show in front of new people if you rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. And direct word of mouth is even more effective. So please recommend it to a friend. I'd love to hear from you. You can leave a comment on the website at eatthispodcast.com and I'll get a transcript up there as soon as I can. You can also find me on Twitter at eatpodcast and Instagram too at eatthispodcast. For now though, from Eat This Podcast and me, Jeremy Churfus, goodbye and thanks for listening.